to the book of Ephesians, or grab your scripture journal if you have that, and turn to the last few verses of the book. Well, I'm grateful for the past couple Sundays. Um, Edgar and John preached, and I needed both of those sermons, and I'm still thinking through um, some things in my own life that need to change in light of those sermons from these texts from Ephesians. So I'm just grateful for that. I'm grateful for any time I get to hear God's Word and uh, here or other places. And I just want you to know, I think I've said this before, that even when I'm here preaching, um, I am under the Word with you. I'm preaching to myself first of all um, together. And thank you for those who prayed for me the past couple weeks. A couple weeks ago, I was part of a gathering of pastors from the Indianapolis area, the Simeon Trust Expositional Preaching Workshop, and we have this yearly gathering of pastors to study God's Word, to grow in friendship with one another, to grow as faithful um, teachers and preachers of God's Word. So I'm just grateful for that, and I just want you to know that the Bible is being faithfully um, taught and preached all over the Indianapolis area. There are so many faithful churches and pastors around here. So thank you for praying for that. And then thank you for also praying for uh, me in South Carolina last Sunday, so I, or last weekend. I got to spend time uh, with my brother and his church family, part of their men's retreat and their Sunday morning service. So I passed on your greetings to them. Um, so also got to spend time with their elders and sent a fun v- greeting from their elders to ours um, as well. Okay, so we're finishing our series in Ephesians this morning. When we started this series, everyone received, who was here at least at the time, an ESV scripture journal for the book of Ephesians, and I challenged you all to consider using our ZF Ephesians immersion plan, and I'm so grateful for how so many of you did, and I know so many who are gone at the women's retreat um, this weekend and right now also were participating in that. So many of you memorized parts of the book or the entirety. Um, And if you did that, by the way, uh, maybe you could share that, recite that book um, in your small group. If you're a small group leader and you know of someone in your small group who memorized the book or portions of the book, maybe you can gather together and hear God's Word um, from that brother or sister. I know a lot of you read it every day, either a chapter or the whole thing. Some of you um, listened to it on your commute to and from work. Others of you studied it more in depth or read ahead for the sermons, so I hope that was enriching for you and transformative. I hope that when we leave this book of Ephesians for now, we're not the same, either individually or as a church family, and I encourage you to use those, whatever method was helpful for you to immerse yourself in God's Word, that you would use that um, in coming weeks and months as well somewhere else in the Bible. Um, So... Before we get to this text in a whole, let's look at the last line of the book. All who love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible. So that's where this letter lands and ends. And it's a reminder that one way to refer to a Christian is as someone who has an undying love for Jesus Christ. So in light of that, our next series after this will focus on Him directly focus of the series will be on rediscovering Jesus. You know, there are a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is, aren't there? A lot of different ideas in this room about who Jesus is. And so, we want to know the real Jesus, and we want to love the real Jesus. And so, we're going to go to the Gospel of John to listen to who Jesus says Jesus is. Who is Jesus according to Jesus? So, we'll look at these texts um, where Jesus begins by saying, I am, and then He often completes that sentence by 
showing us something about himself. And so the goal is to learn what it means to trust and love the Lord Jesus with an undying love, which is right where this letter of Ephesians ends. So that'll begin in a couple weeks. So our text this morning, Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 24. Let's read this together and then pray. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother of, and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be more deeply convinced of your love and grace for us, and that we would respond with a love that's undying and ever-increasing. We pray that even in these minutes together that we have to hear your word, you would be doing that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this final paragraph is essentially a personal update from the Apostle Paul and a benediction. So he wants these Ephesians that he's writing to, these Christians in the city of Ephesus, to know how he's doing and to live under his blessing. And so through this, Paul shows really the whole tone and feel of what gospel community should be all about, should be like. He shows the importance of relationships here, of encouragement, and of living under the blessing of God. So what we're doing this morning is learning from his example here. We learn about what it means to be and make disciples as part of a gospel community here. So let's consider four aspects of the life of true discipleship from this closing section. And we see that it involves true community, deep encouragement, expected blessing, and enduring love. So let's consider this together. First, discipleship involves true community. Now we know that our culture is incredibly individualistic, and that influences each and, one, each and every one of us in ways that we may not even perceive yet. It may influence the way that we read the end of a letter like this. I used to read the end of Paul's letters, and I just kind of pictured Paul as an individual Christian out on his own, writing to these churches and tacking on some personal greeting that was fairly inconsequential at the end. But the ending of Paul's letters, most of them, give an incredible window into the core values of the Christian life and ministry. And here, just deep personal relationships. I mean, first of all, Paul is not alone when he's writing this letter. So we shouldn't just picture Paul as kind of on his own as this apostle, traveling by himself, and then writing to these churches mere kind of content. There's deep relationships involved here. He mentions this man, Tychicus, who's with him. Who is that? Well, he's apparently a ministry co-worker with Paul. He was with him in Rome when Paul wrote this letter. That's probably where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He may have even been the one who's actually writing this down as Paul's dictating it. That's often how it worked. We read from the book of Acts that Tychicus was part of a group of people who accompanied Paul as he traveled. And Paul mentioned him again later in his life in the letter of 2 Timothy. It's the last known letter that we have of Paul's. As he's nearing his death, he mentions this man's name, and so we see that Tychicus was one of Paul's faithful friends to the end. 
Paul's also with other people as he's writing this too. Notice in verse 22, he said, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, not just how I am. Now, who's the we? Well, it's at least Paul and Tychicus, but it's probably referring to several other people with Paul as well. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians uh, most likely at the same time that he wrote a letter to Christians in the city of Colossae. And at the end of that letter, Colossians, he basically gives a very similar parallel conclusion, but he mentions some of the other people that are with him. He mentions six others who are with him. Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus Justice, right? not to be confused. wonder how many people had to use two names when their first was Jesus back then. Um, just to be clear, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. So Paul almost always had a team of friends with him, men and women who were friends and partners in ministry. You know, one of my greatest joys in life comes from the friendships I have from ministry. Some of my closest friends are those who I've served with in different volunteer, Christian, church, or ministry contexts or served on staff with. Just a couple weeks ago, I drove up to Wheaton just to spend a few hours with a few of my friends. One of them was a brother that I was on staff with at my previous church in the area. Later this month, I'm heading back up there for a gathering to celebrate the retirement of one of uh, my friends who I served in ministry with, and I can't wait to be there uh, with those friends. I love the friendships of other pastors in the Indianapolis area. I meet with a few of them every month for what we call the Indianapolis Preaching Fellowship. We study the Bible together, we share ministry highlights and heartaches, and we pray for one another. I'm grateful to serve closely with the elders and staff here on a daily basis at times. Many have become close friends over time. Grateful to work with deacons and ministry leaders, many of you. I love talking with people about the Bible and the text that I'm about to speak on of the upcoming Sundays. We read it together as a staff, and sometimes at the end of our discussion on the text, I just think, can we just do this on the platform on Sunday? Can we just have this conversation? Because I'm so encouraged from this discussion, and it's so helpful to me. I often have a sermon study group where I ask several members just to meet with me for a few months to talk about the, t- the upcoming sermon text, and I'm so grateful for those friendships that have formed even through that. And so this is a key part of gospel ministry. Friendship is not just kind of a social accessory. It's not just an optional addition. We were made for it. So for all of you who serve in ministry roles and volunteer, or if you're going to be on staff at a a church or ministry, cultivating friendship should be a key goal. And this also has implications for all aspects of service in the church. Paul's giving us a window into true community. It's to be filled with deep relationships. And we need this today, don't we? Cigna Health Insurance just recently did a survey of something like 20,000 people, and they found that over half of the people, 54%, said that they feel like they sometimes or always have, there's no one who knows them well. 40% said that they said their, their relationships aren't meaningful. So we're in a, a crisis, right, of deep relationships, community, and friendship today. And as the church, we, can, we are the outpost of the new creation. We're the new humanity that God's creating, and we can show our world what it looks like to live in rich, deep community. So I encourage you, come early on Sundays and linger longer, or at least come on time, uh, for those of you who need to hear that, and linger longer 
and through the week get together with coffee and meals like so many of you do and talk about what you're reading and learning from God and His Word. You know, the reason Paul brings Tychicus up is to let the Ephesians know how he's doing. Verse 22, you can read it with me. He said, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are. So, of course, this assumes that that church cares about him and cares how he's doing. They don't just want the content of this letter. They're not just grateful that Paul's told them about these incredible gospel realities and how to live in light of Jesus and love him well. They want to know how he's doing because they love him. They want to know how their missionary pastor friend is. So what's that mean for us? Well, I think most directly, this has implications for how our church engages with our missionaries and our missionary pastor friends. Paul's a missionary friend of the Ephesians. He doesn't live among them anymore, but they care for him. They care about him. He knows they want to hear how he's doing. And so I'm so grateful for how many of you have encouraged our mission partners over the years, and especially for those who are newer to Zionsville Fellowship. How can you be involved in this? Well, here's a, a few ways. I reached out to Christian Nass, who's a leader of our mission team, for some ideas, and here's a few of them. One first step would be to sign up for our missions newsletter. The mission team sends this out with updates and prayer requests from our partners. So to sign up for this email, just go to our website. There's a button to click on missions updates, and you can get that email. Or you can just send a note to zfmissions at gmail.com. You can also be involved as small groups. Consider adopting a mission partner as a group. You can keep up with them through messaging services for updates and for prayer. And when you do receive newsletters from people, um, you can pray for them specifically. And it's very discouraging for a mission partner to send out updates and not get any responses back. Doesn't mean that the people that receive the letter aren't praying, but to not get any responses back can be discouraging because people don't know. So I just encourage you, as you get updates from mission partners, just send a note to let them know how grateful you are for them, to let them know how you're praying for them. Is that encouraging, Mosses? Yeah, great. We have some mission partners with us here this morning. Great to see you. Um, You can also send care packages and notes. You can send them books that you found encouraging. Consider visiting them to encourage them if that would be helpful to them. So those are a few ways that we can be engaged in doing uh, for our mission partners what the Ephesian church was doing for Paul. So second, true discipleship involves deep encouragement. Paul's first reason for sending Tychicus was to tell them how they're doing, but there's a second reason. In verse 22, he says, I sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul could have just given the update at the end of this letter. Personally, I wish that he did, right? So we can just hear what's going on in his life. But instead, he sends Tychicus, a fellow ministry partner, so that Tychicus could in person, face-to-face, encourage them. And I'm saying deep encouragement here because it's not just encourage them. Paul says he wants him to encourage their hearts, right? The core of who we are, to, to bring strength to the core of our personalities, the deepest part of us. This is one of Paul's primary goals in ministry. I wonder if you've noticed that, to encourage people's hearts. It's important to see this. One of the greatest summaries of Paul's purposes in ministry comes 
in the letter to the Colossians at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, and here's what he says in part of it. He said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And here's the purpose. Here's what Paul says is his great struggle for these churches and Christians. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. Paul's great struggle in life and ministry is in part that people's hearts would be encouraged, strengthened. Here's how he put his goal in the letter to the Thessalonians. He he puts this in a benediction. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave eternal comfort and good hope. May he comfort your hearts. Same word and phrase. Encourage your hearts and establish them in every good word and work. We learn about Paul's ministry from the book of Acts. That's where Luke describes Paul's travels in planting churches and strengthening churches. And all throughout there, we, we see him moving from place to place. And then Luke, who wrote this, who traveled a lot with him and is just sharing Paul's story, he adds this summary statement of Paul's ministry. And he says, Paul went here and he strengthened their hearts or strengthened the brothers. And he went here and he strengthened the churches. And he went to, Paul even says, I want to go revisit these churches we planted to strengthen the brothers and sisters there. This was just Paul's MO. This is, this is his goal in ministry was to see people come to know the Lord Jesus and then to have their hearts strengthened and encouraged. So what does that mean? Well, to encourage means to instill someone with courage and cheer. Definition came from a Greek lexicon of mine. Great definition. To instill someone with courage and cheer. It's to meet someone with whatever level of weakness or discouragement or weariness or anxieties they have, and to seek to give them strength and comfort so that someone would leave their conversation with you and their heart would be cheered. They would be happier from having been in your presence. We need this. Most of the people we talk to in any given conversation need this. There are a number of ways we can do it. Let me just draw attention to one way that we see Paul doing right here. He does it through affirmation. Look at what he says about Tychicus in verse 21. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Paul did not need to add those additional statements about him. He could have just said, He will tell you how how we are. But instead he says, no, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, he will tell you how we are. He adds this lengthy and incredibly affirming description of him. Paul, he's cutting his letter short by not including details about how he personally is doing, but he's still going to take extra time to publicly affirm Tychicus to the Ephesians. Apparently, he wants them to uh, hear Tychicus' name and just have their mind filled with these kinds of thoughts about him. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister. Paul tells them more about Tychicus than he says about himself. And Paul does this all the time. It's often how he ends the letters. These sections that we can maybe tend to skip over as unimportant, these closing letters of 
the, of Paul, they give us a window into what a gospel culture should look and feel like. It should be filled with this kind of affirmation. So let me just give you a couple other examples of how Paul does this. I think he's one of the greatest examples of what it looks like to encourage and affirm people. So turn the page, just maybe one page over to Philippians chapter 2. Paul's once again just giving an update on how he's sending a couple of guys to this church at Philippi. But as he does it, he fills the description with these public affirmations. So So look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 and following. And as we just scan this, really a central point in what Paul's doing is just saying, I'm sending these guys to you. He could have said that in a phrase or two. But listen to this. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own comforts, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how he has a son with a father, or how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. That, that seems totally unnecessary unless public affirmation and encouragement is actually necessary. And he does it again next. He says he's also sending a name, a man named Epaphroditus, whom they already know. They need no introduction to this guy. He's from their own church, but Paul goes out of his way to affirm them. So just picture, you know, if we send someone out and then as, as a mission partner and then someone else kind of goes and partners with them for just a little bit of time, he's going to be coming back, and our mission partner writes a letter back saying, hey, I'm sending this person back to you. We know who this person is. We're the one who sent him to partner with this person, right? But then the letter comes back filled with effusive affirmations about this brother. That's what Paul's doing here. Here's what he says, verse 25. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. And then verses 29 to 30. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I count five statements of affirmation of Epaphroditus. And did you hear what Paul's own command was here? Honor such men. Honor such brothers and sisters. Paul is actually putting us under the command of God to do the kind of thing that he's doing here to honor people, to express our esteem for people, and to do it publicly like he's doing here. One more example from the end of Romans. You don't need to turn there, but it'd be a few pages back if you do. Paul's just listing a number of people whom he's sending greetings to, but listen for these extra phrases. And by the way, if you're familiar with the Bible and you spent time in the book of Romans, you think of this probably as, you know, a thick doctrinal letter, and it is that. But listen to the end of this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. I commend to you our sister and welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. In chapter 16 of Romans, verse 3 now. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches. Verse 5, greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, 
who has worked hard for you. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who's approved in Christ. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania, I didn't work on that one ahead of time, and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Do you hear this relational thickness of New Testament apostolic Christianity? And do you hear the over-the-top affirmation and encouragement? When Paul mentions people's names, he just is filled with affirmation about them. And then he doesn't just keep it in his mind, he expresses it. And if he does have more critical thoughts about people, he puts a seatbelt on that. He restrains himself from doing that. I just feel like so many of us in our culture are so used to the opposite. Be free with your criticisms and then so restrained in expressing esteem and affirmation. And apparently the Holy Spirit thought that these extended sections of greetings and affirmations are important enough to include in sacred scripture for us. So for us, when you're in a conversation and someone's name comes up for one reason or another, just throw in there a positive comment about him or her. Restrain your critical comments and be effusive with encouragement. When someone's name comes up in a group setting, just toss in something affirming about that person, even if it seems completely, ir- completely irrelevant to the topic at hand. And these comments Paul's throwing in seem ir- irrelevant to the topic at hand, but Paul recognizes they're relevant because in and of themselves, they're important to include. Paul's comments seem throwaway to us when we read through them, but they're deeply meaningful. For you and your discipleship relationships and friendships, this is a model for you. Discipleship is not just about information transfer. It's to be deeply relational, filled with affirmation and encouragement. And men in particular, I think in our culture, we need to recover these kinds of affectionate expressions as well. He refers to the beloved brother several times. So my plan, I think I've shared this before, just so that I can get traction in this more, because I need to grow in this, is that whenever the thought comes to my mind, whenever an encouraging or affirming thought comes to mind about someone, I just act on it immediately. Send the text, send the email, just say it, um, because they're too few and far between. And if I don't say it right away, I'm going to forget it. And our culture and our world and our churches are already withering for a lack of this. So let's, I don't think we can possibly overcorrect, but I think it's okay to do that. We certainly, better, than, better to swing the pendulum encouraging people with gracious, kind, true encouragement than being critical of others and filling an atmosphere with that, right? And for those of you who spend time in a workplace environment, you can contribute to setting a new tone. You can start filling the atmosphere with encouragement and affirmation. You can refrain from critical statements about your supervisors or employers. You can instead highlight what you appreciate about them. Even if in your own mind and heart you think that is relatively small in comparison with things that you don't appreciate about them. So those are the first two marks of true discipleship from Paul's example here. Third, it's marked by expecting blessing or expected blessing. That's what benedictions are. Benedictions are about expecting what only God can give. 
And that's how Paul ends the letter here, with a benediction. Verse 23. You can read it with me. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. So benedictions, they start with, may the Lord do this, or may peace be to the brothers. That's an implied may before the peace there. May peace be to the brothers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May this happen. It's, a, it's not a prayer offered directly to God. Uh, it's not just a statement of praise. It's unique. It's a benediction. It's, it's an expected blessing. May the Lord bless you in this way. They aren't just conclusions, though they show up at the ends of things, ends of sections and letters here. They're really transitions. They take, often they take the main themes of what came before. So in New Testament letters, they take the main themes of the letter, and then they recast them as expected blessings from the Lord. So Paul looks for Christians to be blessed by God with three gospel realities here. Peace, love, love with faith in particular, and grace. Those were three of the primary words used in this whole letter, right? If you've been with us these past months. So he's talking peace already. In chapter 2, he said that we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. We were separated with God because of our sins. He says we were dead, spiritually dead in our sins. We were children of wrath, deserving of His wrath. But then Paul went on to say in chapter 2 that Jesus through His blood. He, he died in our place, taking the punishment we deserve. And so, He's removed the barrier and the hostility. He's, he's reconciled us to God when we trust Him. If that's new to you, by the way, this idea of being restored to friendship with God through the blood of Jesus, I encourage you to give this more consideration. Maybe read one of the Gospels in the New Testament. Those are Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can take one that's under the seats nearby and just, that's yours, um, and get to know Jesus from the pages of Scripture. Um, we hope that you learn to trust Him this morning or soon, be restored to God through His work. Paul says God's also brought peace between people, Christians who previously, before they were in Christ, were hostile to one another because of different personality types or ethnicities or social status or economic status. We're now brought together in Jesus, and we're a family. And so we church families are called to be, as Paul said in chapter 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Paul's now saying that the only way, in this benediction, here's the point, the only way we'll experience this peace is if God gives it, right? God has to cultivate this through our, our own hearts. And so this benediction says, may peace be to the brothers and sisters from God the Father and the Son. And then he says, love with faith. For Paul, love and faith are organically connected. Christian love, true Christian love, springs from faith. True Christian faith always results in love. They always go together, which is why he can have a phrase like this that's so common to link these two together, love with faith. This is drawing on this theme in Ephesians 2, or Ephesians as well. Turn back for just a moment to chapter 1. In verses 4 to 5, the first appearance of this in detail, we learn that in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So, before the foundation of the world, the Father in love 
predestined us to be adopted into His family in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4. We hear that we were dead and we were made alive in Christ. Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. Then turn to chapter 3. Paul prays in verse 18 of chapter 3 that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then chapter 5, verse 2. We are called, this great summary statement of the section, we are called to walk in love or live in love as Christ loved us. Right? So we receive the love of Christ and then we reflect that in everyday life back to Him and to others. And now He gives this benediction at the end and He's basically saying, may God Himself give you this love. May you experience the Father's love in Christ and learn and begin to reflect that back to Him and one another. And he adds this third word, grace. If there's a word that stands out most in Ephesians, it might be this one, grace. God saves us, Paul said, to the praise of His glorious grace. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And now we hear, may grace be with all of us. May the Lord give us a deeper experience of His grace every day. As we continue to uncover sinful tendencies in our heart or sin explicitly, may we learn to walk in God's grace, confessing that to Him, receiving fresh forgiveness from Him. There's an endless resource. So this benediction reminds us then that we'll only pursue peace together if God gives it. We'll only experience God's love and reflect that to one another if God Himself by the Spirit grants it. And we'll only experience His grace more deeply if God Himself brings that about. And the benediction then reminds us that this is God's heart. It's His deepest heart to bless us. He loves to do this. And so let's give and receive benedictions like this. Paul's just throwing it in here in a letter. You can throw it in your emails. Um, Speak it over one another. Speak it over my sons before bed often. Here's what one author said about these. In particular, a benediction at the end of a church gathering like this. The benediction at the end of the Christian worship service is its absolute high point. I challenge you to see the concluding benediction as the crown jewel of our corporate worship with the Lord every week. Its origin at the end of the worship services or service is the apostolic benediction at the end of the epistles. Its meaning goes back to the Israelite high priest's solemn covenant function to put God's name on His people so that He can bless them. The benediction in our service is not a pious wish of the minister. What makes it so special is what God is doing. He puts His name on us and blesses us with His smile and His peace. Next Sunday and thereafter, look up during the benediction and receive God's smile on you and go in peace. So benedictions aren't just religious ways of saying you're dismissed. They're like bridges, right? Taking the gospel content that we've received from God's Word and casting it forward ahead of us as an expected blessing for the hours and weeks ahead. There's one more aspect of true discipleship here, and it's enduring, enduring love. The final phrase of the letter, 
Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. This letter has been filled with statements of God's love for us, the Father and the Son. It's been filled with encouragements for us to love one another. And here, as the very final phrase, Paul focuses explicitly for the first time, actually, on our love for Jesus. And Paul says that the love that true Christians have for Christ is an incorruptible love. This means it's an eternal or an undying love. Our culture has a deep desire for that kind of love, right? Don't we? In our culture, you experience this. We want undying love. In the songs, we hear affirmations, these proclamations of a love that's unconditional or unfading that will never stop. And yet we know as we hear these lyrics from songs five years ago and know anything about the people that proclaimed those in a certain relationship that that love has faded. It's long gone. Right? We're chasing not just continual experiences of fresh love, but we're chasing a deep, undying love. We long for it. And so in our culture, we, we fool ourselves into thinking that we're experiencing it in certain ways when time after time we don't, but we still long for it, and so we proclaim it. And yet, the Bible says that there is a place we can find it. The Bible shows us that, that eternal love is possible because God is love, right? The, the one true God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has eternally existed as a community of love. That's why John in 1 John 4, which I read at the start of our service, he can say God is love. Only the Christian God is a God who is love because He didn't need us, but from the, before the foundation of the world, eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, always existing with this effusive and overflowing love for one another. It's, it's who He is. And that God created the universe to display that love, and He made us that we might experience His love and reflect that love back to us and be transformed by that love. And that love was seen in Jesus as He came not only out of love for His Father, but also love for us. When the Apostle John described Jesus' final hours in the Gospel of John, he said this, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, all the way to the end of his life, to the cross, and then continually. He has an undying and eternal love for us. And now we see this love for us, and it transforms us. When God opens our eyes and our hearts to behold and experience his love, it has an effect on us. We don't just mentally apprehend His love. It, it burrows down into the core of who we are and starts rearranging our own loves. It, it melts our hostility. It humbles us. It calms our soul. And it frees us then to love other people, even when they, when they don't love us. This is what the universe exists for. For God to show us how much He loves us and for us to love Him back and love one another. So, as we leave Ephesians for now, let's continue to cultivate this undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for one another. This is very personal. Right? Christianity is not just about receiving grace. 
It's not just about loving grace. It's about receiving the love of Jesus and loving Him. We all intuitively know that the most important reality in life is loving and being loved. Very few would disagree with that in our culture, right? Even though we're chasing things and we've made an idol out of success, we all do know deep down that it's not satisfying because however bad we are at loving relationships, we know that that's the stuff of life, loving and being loved, right? And uh, Ephesians ends by reminding us that it goes deeper. We can be eternally loved, and we can express an undying eternal love in response with the Lord Jesus and with one another. So, Ephesians has been a blast. I'll miss it with you all. I'd, I'd like to start over from the beginning and go through this again. I feel that with every book we go through, though, so I'm sure that um, we'll be excited for the next one as well. Um, but what a privilege to be called by God as His people to enjoy His love and to learn to love one another. Uh, faltering as we may be at times, needing tons of grace and patience and forgiveness for one another. Uh, I know I need that from you, um, but what a joy, and it'll go on forever. Let's pray and then sing. Father, thank You for who you are. Father, Son, and Spirit, we're so grateful that you as the one true and triune God are love and that you have made the universe and us to share that love, to spread your goodness. And thank you for catching us up in, into this love. We pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to be increasingly open to your love, that it would pour into our dry souls or the dry places of our souls and enter into the cracked clay ground of our souls and begin to make us soft and loving in response. Thank you for giving us this church family where we can learn to do this together. And so we pray that you'd surprise us in the coming hours and days and weeks, even next minutes, with an experience of your felt presence and a love for one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have an opportunity together to express our love for the Lord, our incorruptible love. Um, so let's sing this together, just a simple chorus that I hope is familiar. We'll sing just the voices. Um, so I'll just start us off and we'll sing just the voices. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, O oh, my soul, rejoice. Why don't we stand and let's sing together.
Peace be to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible. Go in peace.